All righty. Uh, good afternoon and welcome to the uh, March 2021 Major Mondays webinar series. Uh, I'm Chris Major and today we're going to be looking at a deeper look at uh, lien subrogation and offset rights under Section 29 in New York. Uh, as always, this is a uh, live question and answer session. So if you have any questions, go on and type them in the box uh, and we'll get to them at the end. <clears throat> So I'm going to assume everyone uh, who's participating in this webinar is familiar with um, most of Section 29. Uh, this is sort of like the 201 level presentation, um, but we'll just touch on the uh, basics briefly. So this pertains to the third party action concept of someone else to blame for the claimant's work related accident. Uh, what are we looking at here? MVAs, uh, slip and fall, construction accidents. New York has um, this archaic dinosaur of a statutory scheme called the scaffold law, strict liability for certain uh, accidents on construction sites, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, products liability cases, uh, medical and legal malpractice, things of those nature, things of that nature. So we have three distinct rights under section 29, uh, the right to a lien reimbursement, the right to a future credit and offset, and the right to statutory subrogation. The statute is self-executing, meaning we don't have to do anything to affirmatively uh, invoke it. However, we still recommend serving lien notices throughout the duration of the third-party action. Uh, and note that you have to specifically reserve your offset uh, rights in your consent agreement or else you waive them. Uh, so that does require affirmative action on your part. So does subrogation with service of the Section 29.2 notice. <clears throat> we'll get to that in a little bit. And uh, just one other little tidbit, uh, the claimant waives the right to comp uh, if the carrier's written consent is not obtained for a third-party settlement. All right, so let's uh, let's roll up our, our sleeves and start to get dirty here. Uh, so the Kelly case, everyone's heard about this one. Um, so you might have seen in other states, uh, there's a flat one-third reduction uh, with some allocation made for costs and disbursements uh, to our reimbursement. Well, what they do in uh, New York uh, Section 29 lumps the third-party action costs and disbursements together uh, into one number called cost of litigation. When I say costs and disbursements, uh, I'm talking about when you get an itemized closing statement from third-party counsel, and it has uh, the filing fee for obtaining an index number in New York of $210. Uh, you know, this uh, transcript fee, this witness fee, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then their attorney's fee, that's all lumped together. And then uh, you express it as a percentage of the gross settlement. So costs and disbursements plus attorney's fee divided by gross settlement equals your cost of litigation. Uh, that percentage is then applied as a pro rata reduction to the carrier's total lien. Typically, this means about a one-third lop-off. Um, how do we know this information? Well, uh, we never, ever, ever take the third-party attorney's word for it. You'll sometimes get letters that say, hey, my costs are $300 and uh, my attorney's fee is one-third. Can I have your consent, please? Um, not good enough. I want to know how you got to $300 in cost. So what we do is we request an itemized closing statement both before and after the settlement. And keep in mind, if there's an actual action pending in a Supreme Court in New York, there's a required filing of a closing statement with the uh, New York State Unified Court System Office of Court Administration. So there is a version of the closing statement that's final and done with uh, that happens after you get your lien reimbursement and the money has been dispersed. And uh, as a matter of course, we always request that, and then we compare it to our consent letter and make sure everything's on the up and up. So uh, just a walkthrough of the Kelly calculation, pretty simple. 
let's pretend we got a $100,000 gross third-party settlement, Section 29, Lena 25K, costs and disbursements totaling 1,000, and an attorney fee of 33,000. So first we're gonna get our cost of litigation percentage, right? 33,000 in the attorney's fee plus 1,000 for the costs and disbursements, over 100,000 equals 34%. Uh, now typically it's gonna fall in the range of 33.33% uh, to 36%. If you start getting up into the 40s, you definitely want an itemized closing statement. Uh, second, you're gonna apply that percentage reduction to your lien, so in this case, 0.34 times 25,000 equals 8,500. We take 8,500 off of our total exposure of 25, and we're supposed to get 16,500 in reimbursement of the lien. Uh, and third, you're gonna make sure that those amounts align with the final closing statement we just talked about. Uh, at the end of the day, when you take off our reimbursement and you take off the attorney's fee and you take off the costs and disbursements, assuming there are no other liens, child support, uh, Medicare, things of that nature, the claimant should be getting $49,500, and this is our future credit. This is also why it is vitally important to get an actual itemized closing statement to confirm the money that ended up in the claimant's pocket at the end of the day. That is your future credit. That number is extremely valuable, uh, and generally in our consent letters, which we'll get into in a little bit, uh, we reserve the right to amend the terms of our consent if any of the numbers differ in the closing statement from our consent agreement. All right, so now here's where it starts to get a little hairy. Uh, Burns v. Variali and Bissell versus Town of Amherst, your future offset rights. So if the workers' comp claim is still ongoing after the third-party settlement, we have future offset rights under Section 29.3 and 4. Uh, under Burns, the carrier is responsible for its equitable share of litigation costs. Uh, spoiler alert, this is your cost of litigation percentage that we just calculated going forward. Uh, medical, this also applies to medical on an ongoing basis. Where this gets complicated, uh, speculative future benefits versus not speculative future benefits. And not speculative future benefits have been identified as death benefits, an SLU, uh, permanent total disability, something where we know the exact total of the award and the exact length. Um, the Court of Appeals in Kelly determined that the carrier gets two benefits from the third party settlement, the lien reimbursement and a future holiday period. And so what Burns stands for is the concept that going forward, we're still required to pay our equitable share of litigation expenses. All right, speculative future benefits. Believe it or not, this is actually the easier one. So assume the same facts as the prior example, right? We have our reimbursement of 16.5, cost of litigation of 34, net to the claimant of $49,500. Claimant has a 25% LVAC, uh, entitling the claimant to 250 weeks of benefits at the rate of $300 per week. Um, note, why is LVEC considered speculative? Uh, because the claimant could return to work. We could have reduced earnings. We could have a total suspension of awards. Uh, even though there's a finite number of weeks for the LVEC award, it is considered a speculative future benefit under Burns. So the carrier is responsible for 34% of ongoing LVEC payments. That comes out to 102 per week uh, based on that $300 and that 34% number. When does our holiday period expire? This one's actually kind of interesting. Um, so it's after 165 weeks. How did I get to that number? Uh, 49,500 divided by 300 equals 165 weeks. Uh, those remaining payments after the holiday period, you might've heard the term deficiency compensation. That's what they are. Um, so here's a uh, confusing aspect of this. You might be asking yourself, um, if we're paying for $102 per week of this, 
why am I taking 300 off per week off of my credit? Uh, well, the answer is because that's, that's what the law says. Uh, we actually have to deduct the full amount of the gross payments moving to the claimant for both medical and indemnity from the balance of our third-party credit. Uh, there are countless board panel decisions uh, reinforcing the idea that if we get a back-end credit on that too, in other words, we don't, um, you know, that 102 doesn't get carved out of the offset, uh, we're not actually maintaining our share of litigation costs going forward. So it is the gross amount coming off of the award weekly. Not speculative future benefits. All right, uh, so here we have to calculate the total benefit at the time of the third party settlement. What is that? The lien reimbursement plus the holiday period. So let's assume we have a claimant that has a permanent total disability, uh, they're getting $900 per week, and they have an additional life expectancy of 35 years. Let's assume, and these numbers are gonna be way, way off. This is just for the purpose of having an easy example. Uh, let's assume that the present value of the claimant's lifetime benefits uh, is 600,000, that we've paid 300,000 to date, and the third party settlement is 500,000 with 10,000 in costs and disbursements, and an attorney fee of one third, 163,333.33. What's our cost of litigation percentage? We went over that earlier, 34.67%. Uh, what is the total benefit to the carrier? In other words, what is our lien plus the present value of future benefits? Remember the Kelly case said that we get two benefits under section 29. Well, that is actually going to be $900,000. That's the 300,000 we've paid so far, plus the future um, value or the present value of the claimant's future benefits of 600,000. So what is our equitable share of that quote unquote total benefit? Um, <clears throat> So that would be 900,000 times 0.3467. Our equitable share is 312,030. Uh, then we're going to take our equitable share from our gross lien. 300,000 minus the equitable share equals negative 12,030. Uh, well, what does that mean when we get into the negatives? Our lien is actually extinguished. We're not entitled to reimbursement on this case. And believe it or not, we become exposed in the present to pay um, that additional balance in fresh money. So uh, what actually ends up happening here is we take a complete holiday from payments, even though we have to pay an additional 12,030 upfront. <clears throat> so to determine the claimant's net from the settlement, uh, 500,000 minus 173,333, that's the attorney's fee plus the 10,000 in costs and disbursements. Um, and then plus the money that we're paying in fresh money is 338,696.67. So that's gonna be the claimant's total uh, takeaway from this case. That's our future offset, as you know. So six, and finally, we're done with this. Uh, determine when payments resume. Uh, what's our deficiency comp exposure here? <clears throat> well, 338,696.67. This is assuming no medical treatment, of course divided by the uh, total gross indemnity payments per week of $900 equals 376.33 weeks. So our holiday period is gonna end a little after seven years. Uh, that's 376 over 52 equals 7.24 years. How are future medicals determined? This one's kind of interesting. So uh, future medicals are obviously going to be speculative. And so we're gonna be talking about payments here at the burns rate, that 33 to 36 number. Um, there's a board panel decision out there that's frequently cited to when this issue is addressed. Uh, matter of Franciscan Health Management, and I have the citation there, 
if you want to take a peek at it. Uh, but basically, it stands for the proposition that absent an agreement to the contrary, the way the offset works in terms of medicals is the claimant pays out of pocket and then submits the bills to the carrier for reimbursement. Um, yes, this does make a medical bill objectionable via a C8.1b if there is a valid third-party settlement credit. In other words, the claimant should have paid out of pocket. He didn't. The medical provider is now asking you to pay it. That is objectionable. They should be seeking their reimbursement from the claimant. So how it works practically. The claimant pays out of pocket, submits the bills, uh, the treatment records, and the proof of payment to the carrier. Uh, and then the carrier reimburses at the burns rate of, and I bolded this for a reason, the fee schedule amount. The claimant should only be paying for causally related medical treatment in accordance with the fee schedule. And just like it is everywhere else where we deal with meds uh, in New York workers' comp claims, our liability for reimbursement to the claimant is based on the fee schedule amount. Now, 34% of the total bill, 34% of the total uh, fee schedule amount. <clears throat> so schedule, of lo schedule loss of use actually gets kind of interesting. Um, we have a case that came out a couple of years ago, uh, Terra Nova versus Lear Construction Co. So remember, uh, schedule loss of use is not speculative. It's one of those ones where we know the future, uh, we know the total amount of the award. So um, the carrier is permitted for a credit for prior indemnity paid, as everyone knows, on any SLU award, right? You go to do the permanency findings. The board's going to look at all prior indemnity paid. It even says that in the award, less prior payments made. We get a credit for prior indemnity. But wait a sec. If we get a credit for prior indemnity, and then we're also carrying over a reimbursement credit from the third-party action, isn't that a double credit? Well, so what happens with Terra Nova, uh, they interpret Burns as requiring an additional assessment against the carrier for your equitable share of litigation costs. So how does this shake out? Carrier still gets credit for prior indemnity paid against the SLU, hooray, uh, but the third-party settlement credit, which is, again, the claimant's net, is reduced by the cost of litigation rate once again before it is applied to the SLU value. So if you're carrying forward uh, a $30,000 credit against the SLU and the cost of litigation is exactly one third, the balance of the credit you can actually apply against the SLU is $20,000, not 30. But you still get a credit for prior indemnity paid in the comp claim. <clears throat> Consent agreements, your best friend and potentially your worst enemy. Um, so this requirement for a consent agreement, make no mistake, this is rigidly enforced. Uh, the claimant's only remedy is 29-5 compromise order. That lays out exactly what they need in a petition for uh, an order approving the settlement over your objection, or if they settle it without your consent, an NPT motion, non-protunct motion. Uh, we will be going over how to prepare a good consent letter and uh, how to deal with NPT motions and 29-5 compromise orders uh, in another webinar coming up this year, so I encourage you to tune in for that. Um, but when I say this requirement is rigidly enforced, basically, they need your consent, uh, even though Section 29 is worded as um, only if the future, if the third-party settlement is not in excess of the future exposure, uh, would they need your uh, consent? Well, the way it's been interpreted is that your future exposure under the workers' compensation law could potentially be God knows what. And so every single time, the court is going to interpret this as your consent is required, even if it looks like you're never going to pay another dime on this case. Uh, unfortunately, that's for the uh, claimant and the plaintiff. That's how it works out. You need our consent, period. 
uh, no-fault case with that 50K carve-out issue, and we're not entitled to a lien reimbursement, you still need our consent. Um, if we have a case where the adverse carrier is paying the full policy limit, they literally couldn't do any better in court, still need our consent. It is rigidly enforced. Uh, so this matter of Brisson versus County of Onondaga case says we have to explicitly reserve our future rights. You wanna make sure you're doing that in your consent agreement. Matter of Stenson versus New York State Department of Transportation. This case and the next one on this slide are two of my personal favorites. Uh, the parties can agree to how the offset is to be applied. This is where you can try and negotiate your dollar for dollar offset, which I always recommend doing. Note that we're not entitled to that under the law. No court is ever going to impose a dollar for dollar offset on the claimant. They are confined to burns uh, and that has been flushed out over numerous cases. Um, and your worst case scenario is always going to be burns. They're not gonna be able to quash your lien. That's nonsense. That's a, you know, that's just a bogus threat that they try to get you to consent or take less than a third, a third, a third. Um, <clears throat> they're never gonna quash our lien. Your worst day in court is going to be your burns, uh, your burns rate. So you can agree to the dollar for dollar offset. It's always worth trying to negotiate before conceding the burns rate. Uh, Williams versus Lloyd Gunther Elevator Service. This is an interesting one. So the parties can agree when the credit actually begins. What's the most popular context for this? Section 32 settlements. And if you think about this, this is actually very strange because Section 32 is literally the only way a claimant can waive the right to future compensation under the workers' compensation law, except for this case, which says that if there is a uh, third-party settlement, and you're concerned about the uh, comp exposure increasing, and therefore your Section 29 lien reimbursement is not final, the claimant can agree to essentially halt payments um, pending the approval of the Section 32 settlement. You can also agree to begin your offset as of then, uh, so that this way the terms you agreed upon are not changing as you know the case nears that 32 hearing. Uh, it is one that I love invoking, and I recommend taking a look at it. It's a useful case to have. Uh, it is a very good idea to take advantage of the uh, requirement for your consent and the ability to negotiate how your future offset rights are to be applied. Very good idea. All right, a uh, brief interaction with uh, the insurance law, Article 51, AKA the no-fault law. Uh, there are prior webinars on um, the, the uh, no-fault law and loss transfer and TNCs and ride-sharing companies. I encourage you to check those out. We dive in a little deeper into what this is. Uh, but basically section 29, 1A and 2A say we have no lien or subrogation rights on amounts paid in lieu of first party benefits. Uh, first party benefits are defined as basic economic loss, less certain offsets. What is basic economic loss? The first, I bolded that for a reason, $50,000 paid in necessary medical and indemnity. I say the first 50K because it's the first 50K from all sources. The carrier doesn't need to pay $50,000 total before you're entitled to reimbursement. If the claimant got treatment through their private health insurer, yes, you probably have a HIMP-1 coming your way in the future, uh, but that amount is added to determine when you reach the 50K threshold. It is the first 50K from all sources. And when I said note the limitations on both, uh, necessary medical treatment. It needs to be ascertainable within the first year following the date of loss that treatment will uh, be needed going forward. Um, now, that's gonna be the case in pretty much every single workers' comp claim, but there are instances where, where you'll have an injury 
and the claimant won't treat for over a year. And then they'll, someone will tell them, hey, you can get an SLU award for your knee. I did it. It's great. It's free money. Uh, and then they go out and get a medical report. Well, I would strongly object to that medical not being subject to the, uh, or if they try and say that the medical is subject to the carve out and you're not entitled to reimbursement, I would strongly push back on that because you are. Uh, indemnity is up to 2K per month for not more than three years. What does that mean? If you're paying at the statutory max rate, you're gonna go well over $2,000 per month. Um, that approximate 1,600 to 2,000 that you're going over 2,000 per month is subject to section 29. It's, you're gonna have the one third knocked off of it, uh, but it is subject to a lien. Uh, any benefits paid more than three years after the date of loss with the exception of an SLU. Um, that also uh, counts as uh, not paid in lieu of first party benefits. So the overall effect here is a $50,000 carve out. It applies retroactively and prospectively. What do I mean by that? Um, basically, you, you more often than not need to pay the full 50 before you're entitled to reimbursement for past benefits. And you're not entitled to start asserting your future offset rights until you've hit that threshold. Again, unless it's for benefits that are not in lieu of first party benefits. Um, keep an eye out for exceptions to these. Out-of-state accidents, it uh, doesn't matter if everything else happens in New York, that's not subject to the no-fault law. Doesn't matter if it's a New York comp claim, New York employer, New York claimant, New York defendant, New York tort action, everything could be in New York, but the uh, no-fault law only applies to accidents arising from the use or operation of a motor vehicle in the state of New York. Uh, we talked about payments not in lieu of first-party benefits, so keep an eye out for ways to sort of get around that 50K carve out. It's not absolute. Uh, also keep an eye out for intercompany loss transfer potential. I'm not gonna belabor that point. Um, like I said, there's prior webinars on it and I'm always happy to answer any questions anyone has on loss transfer. All right, subrogation. We're gonna touch on this briefly. briefly. So under section 29.2, uh, subrogation is ripe after the a year after the date of loss or uh, six months after the awarding of comp whichever is earlier. Uh, the way this is flushed out in case law, uh, the first payment of benefits is the first quote unquote awarding of comp. So basically your date from your Shroy IP is your operative date for the uh, six month calculation. You have to serve a section 29.2 notice via personal service or certified mail. You have to advise the claimant of the assignment and uh, the intent to prosecute as a subrogate. Uh, after 30 days, the carrier can prosecute or compromise the third-party action. No, you don't need the claimant's consent to this. You don't even need to tell them you're doing it. Uh, the assignment is absolute. And so you can go ahead and settle this case with the adverse carrier after 30 days. Uh, serving the Section 29.2 notice when first eligible is a good way to light a fire on the subro aspect of the case. Uh, and I say here at the bottom, it's worth serving in almost every case. Why? Leverage, 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 leverage. We had a case um, not too long ago uh, where we were coming up on the statute of limitations. We had timely served a section 29.2 notice uh, and I was able to say to the third party attorney who wanted to do the third or third or third split, hey, guess what, pal? My lien is less than your demand and your current settlement with the adverse carrier. So uh, either you give me back full reimbursement or two days from now, I'm gonna settle for full reimbursement and you'll get nothing. Uh, that is the leverage I'm talking about. It's very powerful. And at the very least, you might not be sitting on your hands waiting for the three-year statute of limitations to go by for personal injury claims before a third-party action is filed. 
you might be able to motivate the claimant to actually move the ball forward earlier. So uh, this is a powerful tool. And even if you never intend to prosecute the case, it's worth serving in my opinion. Uh, just a note here, we're gonna, there's also a major Monday's webinar coming up on suits against public entities. We'll dive in deeper then. Um, just note that suits against municipalities are covered under the general municipal law. Uh, suits against the state of New York are covered by the Court of Claims Act. You need a, a under section 50 of the municipal law, you need to notice a claim like this would be the city of New York within the first 90 days, an abbreviated statute of one year and 90 days. Uh, the Court of Claims Act section 10, you either need uh, to file the case itself or serve a notice of intent on the attorney general within the first 90 days. If you serve the notice of intent, you have two years from the date of loss to file. Uh, in both cases, a carrier can and should file these within the first 90 days. You're allowed to do this. You might be thinking, don't I have to wait six months before I can serve the 29-2 notice or before subrogation becomes right? Yes, technically. Um, but the case law is clear that before subrogation is ripe and before the claimant's cause of action has been assigned, you can protect yourself by filing this notice of claim or notice of intent. And you absolutely should do it. Um, just note that we can rely on the claimant filing one, but it's not possible vice versa. The, cl the claimant can't say, well, the carrier filed a notice of intent, so uh, I can go ahead and prosecute my case. No, uh, the assignment only works in one direction. All right, we're at the close here. Sorry for the lengthy webinar. This is a pretty uh, dense topic, uh, but some extra tips here. Uh, investigate subrogation potential early. Again, it's never too early to surf that Section 29.2 notice, uh, and you want to make sure you're tracking third-party potential at the outset. Always argue for the inclusion of all expenses. Leave it to the third-party attorney to object to the inclusion of those expenses. If you're asking yourself if um, medical bill reviews and things of that nature are subject to a lien, the answer is probably not, um, but let them make that argument. Just know we don't have a lien on UM or UIM claims in New York. Do not settle for a third, a third, a third, unless your reimbursement is less than a third. Uh, nothing obligates you to do that, and everything else you hear is just hemming and hawing. Oh, my case is garbage. Oh, the liability, it's gonna get dismissed on summary judgment. Nobody's gonna get anything. Guess what? No attorney's gonna prosecute a case for a year and walk away when they're on the one yard line for their touchdown settlement. Uh, they're not gonna walk away from an attorney fee. Know that and leverage it. Um, get itemized closing statements before and after. Don't take counsel's word for it. Uh, we talked about that already. Uh, serve lien notices throughout the pendency of the third-party action. Uh, if there's an ATF deposit direction uh, at the time of a permanency classification, you absolutely should be contesting that if the third-party action is pending. Uh, the, there should not be an ATF deposit direction when the issue of a third-party action is still being resolved. Your written consent is required, use it. Uh, like I said, it's a very powerful weapon. Don't accept the blanket 50K carve out in MVA cases without looking for exceptions and the possibility of loss transfer. Uh, watch out for that 90 day timeline for public entities. Keep an eye on global settlements. That's your best way to reduce exposure overall. Uh, we're talking about that Williams versus Lloyd Gunther elevator service case. You can cut off exposure uh, using that third party settlement leverage it maybe with a lien waiver into a 32. Um, closely monitor the third party action and be prepared to intervene if necessary. Um, I recommend coordinating efforts across both the civil action and the workers' comp claim, uh, because if any of the discovery is filed in the third party action, especially if you intervene, it's required to be served on you, 
um, but you'll see deposition transcript, uh, transcripts attached to summary judgment motions or things of that nature. Uh, you'd be surprised at how often they're inconsistent with testimony the claimant gave in the workers' comp claim. They'll testify to all kinds of prior jobs that you knew nothing about. Um, so just keep that in mind. You can poke your head in on the electronic case docket, and it might help you in the comp claim. Uh, and make sure you are properly reserving, calculating, and asserting your offset rights. And don't forget about the CA.1s for medicals. All right, thanks for um, sitting through this. Like I said, it's a pretty dense topic. Let's see if we got any questions. Oh, I don't think we have any questions. I'm going to take that to mean that I did a decent job of explaining and that the uh, system is not buggy. Well, anyway, um, thank you everyone for joining. I hope we see you guys next month for the Major Mondays webinar. And uh, always remember to look out for segregation from the outset.